0: This sermon, The Resurrection, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Easter Sunday, April 9th, 2023, at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, happy Easter, everybody. Happy Resurrection Day. What a day it is, huh? Uh, worship team, thank you. My, my, I don't know about you, but, but my heart, my eyes are already filled up with the glory of my risen Savior. Thank you, worship team, and it is so good to hear the saints sing. I hope that's a blessing as well to you, hearing the saints sing. If you're visiting, my name is Derek Overstreet. I do have the privilege, along with Tom and Tim, to be one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege to preach this morning. And so, would you open up your Bibles to Mark 16? We're going to be looking this morning at the, gospel, at the resurrection account from the gospel of Mark. We'll be limiting ourselves this morning to verses 1 through 8. We like to stand around here when we read God's word just to set the reading of his word apart from everything else that we do. So would you stand with me? This is the infallible word of the Lord. His word, revealing himself. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, our prayer this morning is twofold. One, that that group of people that your Spirit has drawn to our attention this morning, that group that is struggling They have believed in the risen Savior, and yet they find themselves wrestling with unbelief, perhaps in your goodness, perhaps in your awareness of their situation, perhaps in your sufficiency of your grace for them. Lord, I also pray for a group here that may not know you at all. Lord, bring strength and encouragement to the faith of your people who are struggling this morning, but reveal yourself in a saving way to all who do not know you today. Lord, let not one person that walked into this room leave here not knowing you. May everyone who you have gathered here this morning leave this place Easter day April 9th 2023 saved and secure in their risen savior do the work only you can do in Jesus name amen well we drop into the gospel of mark last week we we looked at the triumphal entry jesus and his disciples entering Jerusalem for, for a week that would transform everything. We saw how the crowds rejoiced as Jesus entered the city. But as quickly as they rejoiced, they dispersed. If you were here Friday night, we, we fast forwarded just a few days. And we, we stood by. And watched as our Savior hung from the cross, crucified by men, but judged by God for the sins of men. Indeed, even the sins of the men who nailed him to the tree. Well, now it's early Sunday morning. The bloodied cross on the hill called Golgotha, it now stands empty. Jesus died on Friday afternoon, and later that evening, Mark tells us in chapter 15 that, that his unrecognizable body was taken down off the cross and buried in a grave. Of course, Saturday was the Sabbath, so it was a day of rest, and no doubt for the disciples, it was spent trying to make sense of what took place on Friday, trying to understand how, how could you be so hopeful one moment and so hopeless the next. The, the one who had powerfully healed the sick and scattered the demons commanded the weather and raised the dead to life. He is gone. And it's now early Sunday morning. And in Mark's account of the resurrection, he tells us that three women, two named Mary and one named Salome, they they are up early and they are making their way to the tomb of Jesus. These ladies, if you read in chapter 15, you'll, you'll learn these ladies, they are followers of Jesus. They... They were disciples. They experienced his life and ministry. They watched him breathe his last breath on the cross. Indeed, they watched on from afar as Joseph took Jesus' body down and buried him. They witnessed it all, and now they are about to express their loving devotion to Jesus by caring for his corpse. But they... Are in for the biggest surprise, the greatest surprise of their lives. Look at verse 2 with me again. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right hand, on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And he said to them, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen. (laughs) Happy Easter. That's what we all came this morning. Those words on our lips, perhaps you sang them as you drove to church this morning. Perhaps as a family, you talked about what those three words meant. He is risen. He is not here. Look, that's where his body was. Yes, this is the place, ladies, that you witnessed him being buried. But he is not here. He is alive. He has risen. The angel's words are some of the most exhilarating and hope-giving words ever spoken, aren't they? And yet, if you keep reading in verse 8, Mark also tells us that the ladies were petrified. (laughs) They ran off. They were astonished. They were afraid. They were trembling. And by the way, who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be? What would you have done if you entered that tomb and encountered an empty tomb? What do you think you would have done? And maybe for us this morning, an even better question is, What are you doing with the empty tomb? Because something this grand, something this supernatural, something this logic-defined, we must do something with it. Indeed, we all do something with it. In fact, this, is, this account is here. Mark wrote his entire gospel for two reasons. One, to show who Jesus is. And two, to force people like you and I to make a decision based on the reality of who Jesus truly is. We come to the empty tomb, and we are forced to make a decision what will I do with this? <laughs> See, the Christian faith is not blind. The Christian, Christianity is certainly experiential, but, but the experience is, is built on empirical, historical, undeniable evidence. And if the resurrection is true, then how can you not believe in Jesus. If Jesus is alive, if he was dead and he is alive now, well, I would submit to you, and especially if you're here this morning and you, you would identify as an atheist or you would just simply say, I'm, I'm not an atheist, I'm just agnostic, I'm indifferent. I would submit to you, it takes more faith to be an atheist or agnostic than it does to be a believer in Jesus. Just think about, think about Jesus for a moment. Jesus is an undisputed historical figure. His birth, his life, his death, they are every bit a part of world history. Do you remember that class in high school? They are every bit a part of world history. As King Tut, Julius Caesar, and the great George Washington. Jesus is a historical figure, and so what do we do with him? What do we do with an empty tomb? Well, people have tried to explain it away. What we are here celebrating this morning, what has transformed our lives To the very to their very core. People have tried to explain away. There's been a number of conspiracy theories put out there. One of them is that Jesus' enemies stole his body. There's no evidence, and really it, it doesn't really make sense. If you keep reading in your Bible, you get to the book of Acts, and what we see is Christianity exploding. From here, in just a few days, 39 days to be specific, there will be an ascension. By the way, we're going to look at the ascension next week, so come. Christ will send his spirit and the church explodes onto the scene. Christianity goes to the known world. And all it would have taken, if Jesus' enemies had really stolen the body, we're going to make sure this guy who's saying he would raise from the dead, well, we're just going to make sure there's no... They would have provided the body and Christianity would have been crushed. There's others that say Jesus' own disciples stole his buddy. This is probably the conspiracy theory of all conspiracies, but if you just flip back a few pages to the last chapter of Matthew, and in Matthew 28, it says in verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. In other words, the guards came and says, "Uh, we got a problem. (laughs) Jesus is nowhere to be found. Could you imagine this conversation? Well, what what happened? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? (laughs) He's gone. Okay, here's what we're going to (laughs) do. Here's the damage control. We're going to control this. We're going to get out in front of it. We are going to create the narrative. Here it is. His disciples stole the body. In verse 15 it says, so they took the money and did as they were directed. In other words, they spread that conspiracy. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Yes, indeed, to this day. If... If you believe that Jesus' disciples stole his body, well, there's two big things wrong with that. Uh, in, in the first century, first of all, you would never build a case like this. If, you, if the disciples stole the body, they would not build a case based on, did you know who was going to the tomb? Did you know who the original eyewitnesses were? Three women. And in the first century, nobody built any case for anything on the eyewitness. Of women. Their view of women was not good. And women could not be trusted. Their, their eyewitness account would not be allowed in the court of law alone. And so your case, your case would be dead in the water. It would, it would be what do they say? Uh, dead on arrival. D-O-A, right? Could you imagine as well the authority and conviction and sacrifice with which these disciples preached, particularly in the book of Acts, how they pursued Jesus, the sacrifices they made. It would have never lasted if they knew they were pushing fraud. So it's a conspiracy that that Jesus' disciples stole his body. Someone might even say, they they deal with the empty tomb by saying, well, he never actually died. And actually, on on numerous fronts, this explanation is so outrageous that even Jesus' own enemies didn't push this one. You know one of the things the Romans were really good at? Killing people. (laughs) Executing people. It was... An art. It was a science for them. In Jesus' case, the the, the, the spear. Do you remember the, the spear that was thrust into his side, and water and blood flowed from his body? Well, that was to ensure that he was dead. In chapter fifteen and verse forty-four, just before chapter sixteen, we, we read how Pilate he summoned the centurion. Hey, that guy on the cross, Jesus. Make sure he's dead. And then I want you to report back to me. They had heard the rumblings. It's this guy, he's talking about dying in three days and then raising up. So Pilate wants to make sure. He summons the centurion in chapter 15, verse 44. Is he dead? Good. The spear? Excellent. We're done with him. And so he was, Jesus' death was confirmed at the highest level. Furthermore, just think about Jesus' lifeless body. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected Jew, a respected member of the council, according to verse 15, he was granted permission to take the body of Jesus down. He he touched it. He handled it. He carried it. He wrapped it He set it carefully into the tomb himself. Perhaps he got on his knees in tears and even prayed over Jesus. Joseph would have known if Jesus wasn't dead. But but let's say Joseph of Arimathea, let's say the centurion, let's say Pilate, let's say they all missed it. The idea that that a man who has been awake for at least 36 hours, beaten beyond recognition, and hung on a cross for six hours, bleeding out in the hot sun, let's just imagine that he could have the energy and the strength to remove himself from what was in effect a body bag to move this massive boulder that in verse 4, Mark reminds us out of the blue, it was large. It was very large. He's making a point there. And then once he moved that boulder, he fought off the guards, armed guards no less. And escaped off into the night. Listen, <laughs> that's preposterous. There can only be one conclusion for an empty tomb. You ready? God raised Jesus from the dead. The power of God raised Christ from the dead. This is what the Old Testament scriptures predicted would happen would happen. God raising Jesus from the dead is what Jesus repeatedly taught would happen. 3 times specifically. I must die and I will rise in three days. This is what the authorities feared happened, and it informed how they went about executing Jesus. This is what these three women and the disciples said happened. They were there, eyewitnesses. And it's what over 500 people over the coming weeks would all testify to. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are all still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, least of all, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me, Paul says." (laughs) Listen, the resurrection isn't like one of Pastor Tim's fishing stories. You know, he goes to Colorado where, you know, nobody can verify anything. I don't even know if the rivers are real, right? But then he comes back and he says, no, trust me, I know you weren't there. I was the only one on the river that morning. But really, it it, it was. It was that big. It's like Chris Johnson's eagle. Yeah, the other guys were looking the other way, cleaning their clubs, but boy, I nailed that shot. Now, Paul wrote this letter, what we just read, Paul wrote that 20 to 25 years after Christ's resurrection. And isn't it interesting that he says to over 500 brothers, he could have stopped there, but he says, oh, and by the way, Most of them are still alive. Most of them are still talking about it. A quarter of a century later, you have people who were eyewitnesses talking about it, testifying to it, something they saw with their own two eyes so that them perhaps even touched Jesus, conversed with Jesus. And of course we see in Acts how this empty tomb dominates, particularly early on in Peter's sermon, Stephen's, the resurrection is always central in their gospel preaching because it really happened. Their lives were transformed people who went to Jerusalem to worship over Passover never returned home because they got saved. (laughs) And they stayed with the church. And 2,000 years later, people are still being transformed by the empty tomb and risking their lives for it. You know, when you think about the case for a risen Savior is obvious and undeniable from every angle. I love what Thomas Arnold said. Thomas Arnold, by the way, he was a, he was a 19th century uh, historian, academic. Uh, he wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a theologian. It certainly seems like he was a believer. You can even get that sense from here, but but listen to what he says. He says, the evidence of our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be and often has been shown to be satisfactory. It is good according to the common rules for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up a most important cause. I myself have done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And now listen to what he says. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence Than the great sign which God hath given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. What are you going to do with the empty tomb? You have to do something with it. Two kinds of people this morning. To anyone in this room or watching online who has never believed in Jesus, you must believe. It's irrefutable. You must believe. And you know this. You are looking for hope. We all are. It's part of our human nature. It's inherent in us. We look for it in an identity. We look for it with our senses, through our senses. We look for it in things like careers and material things that become... Our measure in humanity that give us validity in this world. We, we look for hope in politicians and legislation. We look for hope in a, in, a, in a global ideal of the whole world coming together, and let's just live at peace with everyone. Coexist, please. We look for hope. You are looking for hope in a relationship. You are looking for hope, perhaps, in trying to convince yourself you can be somebody that you're not. You're looking for hope in a world where people will just let you be you. Leave me alone. We're all looking for hope. And the empty tomb comes crashing in and says, (laughs) Oh no, I just knocked the empty tomb down. Says, Hope he's alive. He has risen. Jesus' death on the cross that sent him to the grave was for your sins. Yeah. You committed the crime, and Jesus. Did the time. If that language works for you better. On the cross. It's what we saw on Good Friday. On the cross your sins were placed on his shoulders. They were transferred from your name to his name. So that he would be responsible for taking the punishment That you deserve for your sins, so that you could receive full and free forgiveness. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote to that same church in a different letter in 2 Corinthians 5 when he said, For our sake, for the sinner's sake, God made Jesus. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You wonder what that looks like? If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. And by the way, I'm still talking to you. (laughs) Actually, I'm talking to all of us because we're all encouraged by the old rugged cross, aren't we? But you want to know what that looked like. Do you want to know what happened on the cross? Let me read you something. It's from the crucifixion narrative that we read on Friday night. This is what happened on the cross. This is what took place between a holy God and the one who came to offer himself, as we heard this morning in communion, as a sacrifice, a bloody, messy sacrifice that was once for all. Here's what happened at the cross on your behalf. God spoke to Jesus as he hung dying, and he said, why have you sinned against me? And he scorned on my great glory. You are self-sufficient and self-righteous. You are consumed with yourself and puffed up and, and, and selfishly ambitious. You rob me of my glory and worship what's inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are a greedy, lazy, gluttonous, slanderer, and gossip. You are a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You make pornography and you fill your mind with vulgarity. You exchange my truth for a lie and worship the creature instead of the creator. And so you are given up to your homosexual passions, dressing immodestly and lusting after what is forbidden. With all your heart, you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother and murder him with bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor and deal slaves and ignore the needy. You persecute my people. You love money and prestige and power. You put on a cloak of outward piety, but inside you are filled with dead man's bones. You are a "'Hypocrite, son of man. "'You are lukewarm and easily enticed by the world. "'You covet and can't have, so you murder. "'You are filled with envy and rage "'and bitterness and unforgiveness. "'You blame others for your sin "'and you are too proud to even call it sin. "'Son of man, you are never slow to speak "'and you have a razor tongue that lashes and cuts "'with its criticism and sinful judgment.' "'Your words do not impart grace. "'Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation "'and guilt and obscene talk.' You are a false prophet leading people astray. You mock your parents. You have no self-control. You are a betrayer who stirs up division and factions. You're a drunkard and a thief. You're an anxious coward. You do not trust me. In fact, you blaspheme against me. You're an unsubmissive wife, and you are a lazy, disengaged husband. You file for divorce and crush the parable of my love for the church. You're a pimp and a drug dealer. You practice divination and worship demons. Son of man, the list of your sins goes on and on and on and on. And I hate these things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup of wrath. And Jesus does. On the cross, he drinks for hours And in drinking for hours, he downs every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with his white hot wrath against that sin. as every one of your sins and my sins were placed on the shoulders and the punishment those sins deserve was absorbed. By Jesus, as He hung on a cross. Jesus was innocent of every one of those sins. They belonged to you and I. and yet as a once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus took the punishment. Now you might be here this morning, you might go, pastor, I don't know you, but that's primitive. That's immoral. Frankly, if you believe that, you're foolish. Well, all who have believed it call it amazing grace. We call it divine love, undeserved love. And you know what makes what happened on that cross... By the way, the cross is a historical event. You know what? You you know what? It's his resurrection. It's the empty tomb that makes what was done at the cross effectual. If Jesus cried out from the cross with some of his in his last dying breath, it is finished. Then the the empty tomb is God declaring, it is accepted. It is sufficient. The work my son did, the work I sent him to do, the work that he left the glory of the Trinity behind to accomplish according to the high priestly prayer, it is good in my eyes and it is sufficient for all who would come to me in faith to be forgiven and stand righteous in my presence forever. What do you do with Easter Sunday? What do you do with the empty tomb? Romans 8 says, I mean, excuse me, Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do you do with the empty tomb? You believe. You believe today. You believe wherever you are that Christ lives. And because he lives, you can be saved. Amen. Look, look. Did you notice in verse four? Look, look what happens. I love this picture. The ladies, they they get to the tomb and looking up, they saw that the stone has been rolled back. It was very large. And then look at verse five. And entering the tomb. What a picture. These three ladies entered the tomb. I would submit to you that the stone was rolled away not so much to let Jesus out but to let us in. We can enter in to the kingdom of God. We can step into a place where we could never be otherwise. Not only through the death of Jesus, but the resurrection that vindicates and validates and makes effectual the word of the cross. What will you do with the empty tomb today? Specifically to my non-Christian friends, believe, call on the name of Jesus. Believe that he died for your sins and was raised from the dead and have a hope, an eternal hope that no one can ever take. Listen to the Christian in this room or watching online. Keep, keep believing in Jesus. You you believe in, we've all been here, right? I believe in Jesus. These three women believed in Jesus and yet their hearts were full of unbelief. Did you notice what they're doing? They're going to the empty tomb. They have spices in hand. And what are the what's the conversation? Mark doesn't say, and they wondered. Huh. You know, I was thinking last night, I remember the disciples talking about Jesus, and he said something about a resurrection. Do you think it could be? No. The, the, Mark says that they were. In verse 3, they, they were saying to one another, how are we going to get in the tomb? How are we going to get into the body? That, that verb translated saying, it's in the imperfect tense. And, and what that means is, ongoing action. And so this question wasn't just thrown out there. This is what they were talking about. So how are we going to get in there? I don't know. Well, do you think maybe they kept talking about this consumed their thoughts as they make their way to the tomb. How will we get in there? We, we know he's in there. We watched the stone cover it up. It was a big stone. They had no sense that Jesus would be raised from the dead. They, They had forgotten. These ladies followed Jesus in his life and ministry. They heard his teachings. If they didn't hear directly from Jesus that he would be killed and then raised again, no doubt they heard it from the disciples who they served and loved and spent much time with. In their belief, their hearts were filled with unbelief. These women are certainly commended for their courageous expression of devotion to Jesus, but at the same time, their devotion reveals their unbelief. You got to wonder where the disciples in this story. You would think that Peter and the other men would have been standing at the tomb waiting to see Jesus. They weren't. Did you notice verse 7? The angel says to the women, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he was going before you to Galilee. Then you will see him. What does it say next? Just as he told you. Yeah, yet Jesus had told the disciples. In chapter 14, in fact, look at it with me. Chapter 14, verse 28. Look at verse 27, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, (laughs) there you go, I will go before you to Galilee. I will go before you to Galilee. In other words, I'll see you in Galilee. Oh, the disciples. Their hearts were filled with unbelief. They failed to believe Jesus. Isn't it easy to identify with them? Even on this side of the cross, in the empty tomb. Even with with the scriptures in our hands and the spirit in our hearts revealing and guiding us we all fall into unbelief, though we believe. And this empty tomb comes in and reminds us that our faith is real. Christianity is real. Our faith is not in vain. We are not to be pitied, as Paul said to the church in Corinth. If Christ is dead, then our faith is in vain, and nobody is to be pitied like us. Christians are, in effect, a joke. But the empty tomb was empty. Nobody stole the body. There's no body yet to be found today. Don't worry, you're not going to turn on the news one day and say, hey, we found the corpse of Jesus. Sorry, Christians. The tomb is empty, it will always be empty. You know what that means? That, that means that, that my life is not a house of cards. It means that my sins are truly forgiven. It means that the power of death over your life is truly broken. That the penalty of your sin. Is really paid, fully paid. It, it means that God's love, we heard it this morning, we sung about it this morning, is eternally yours. And one day you will live in Christ's glorious presence because He lives, you live. He is the first fruits, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, meaning He is our pattern. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of Christ, perfected in the glory of his Father. As he is, you too will one day be. Worshiping in his presence. Sharing in his glory. Why? Because the tomb is empty. And so that should affect everything you're going through today everything you're going. Think about the hardest thing in your life right now. What came to mind as you heard Pastor Tim in communion? Listen, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, and he did, he can handle your situation. Do you know Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in chapter one? I want your eyes to be open more and more, the eyes of your heart. And then he rattles through three three aspects of the gospel landing on this. The power of God toward you is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Christian, your faith is not in vain. Your struggle is not in vain. And you are not on your own. The empty tomb ensures Jesus is there. He is faithful and he is sufficient. And next week we'll talk a little bit about what that means. That he is at the right hand of God right now. Interceding for you. Preserving his applying blood over your sins. Well, I'm not getting into that. We'll we'll, we'll come back next week. (laughs) The empty tomb ensures that God's promises to you are yes and amen. Just stamp yes and amen on the promises of God because of the empty tomb. The empty tomb ensures that God's throne is approachable and that you will always find mercy and just the right grace in your time of need. The empty tomb ensures that your forgiveness of sins and your justification before God, that is your righteousness that comes from Jesus. That because of the empty tomb, you stand before God forgiven and justified fully, finally, and forever. The empty tomb ensures you that there is a better life the resurrection life with Jesus now and the resurrection life with Jesus to come listen to these words by JC Ryles we close we need not wonder that so much importance is attached to our lord's resurrection It is the seal and headstone of the great work of redemption which he came to do. It is the crowning proof that he has paid the debt which he undertook to pay on our behalf, won the battle which he fought to deliver us from hell, and is accepted as our surety and our substitute by our Father in heaven. Had he never come forth from the prison of the grave, how could we ever have been sure that our ransom had been fully paid? Had he never risen from his conflict with the last enemy, how could we have felt confident that he he had overcome death and him that had the power of death, that is the devil? But thanks be unto God, we are not left in doubt. (laughs) No, we are not. Why? Because the Lord Jesus really rose again for our justification true christians are begotten again unto a lively hope of the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead they may boldly say with paul who is he that condemns it is christ that died yes but never forget this part of the verse rather that he is risen again What are you going to do with the empty tomb today? Whether it's embrace Jesus, the risen Savior, for the first time, or it's allow the Spirit to apply its divine and eternal implications to your hardest moment right now. What will you do with the empty tomb? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Jesus is alive. Our salvation is real. Our faith is not in vain. We are not to be pitied. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty, and therefore all his work on our behalf will not be undermined, will not be undone, and doubt will find no home in our hearts because the tomb is empty. Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Grant us the grace now to follow hard after you with hearts of faith and joy. In Jesus name amen